Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! We've never had a president of the United States stir up a violent attempt to block the transfer of power. I believe nearly two years later, this is still a time of reflection and reckoning. If we are to survive as a nation of laws and democracy, this can never happen again. The House January 6th committee has issued its final report accusing Donald Trump of a multi-part conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election, saying he lit the fire for the January 6th insurrection. We'll speak to the nation's John Nichols and Stanford professor Hakeem Jefferson. We can't understand why a mob of white Americans stormed the Capitol to obstruct democracy without understanding perceived threats to white identity and to white power in this country. It is the most uncomfortable truth in America. Then the quest to defuse Guyana's carbon bomb. We'll look at efforts to prevent ExxonMobil from drilling off the shore of Guyana, where more than 11 billion barrels of oil have been discovered. It's crucial to stop ExxonMobil and the government of Guyana from transforming Guyana from a carbon sink, which removes carbon from the atmosphere, and turning Guyana into a five gigaton carbon bomb All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House Select Committee on the January 6th attack has released its final 845-page report on the insurrection at the Capitol and Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The report finds Trump was the central cause of the violence on January 6th and that he or his inner circle engaged in at least 200 apparent acts aimed at overturning state election results. The January 6th committee is recommending Congress consider barring Trump and others involved in the insurrection from ever holding public office again, citing the 14th Amendment. The committee is also calling for reforms to the Electoral College certification process and expanded efforts by the government to combat far-right and white supremacist groups. We'll have more on the January 6th report after headlines. The Senate has approved a $1.7 trillion omnibus spending package, setting up a vote in the House of Representatives today, ahead of a midnight deadline to avoid a government shutdown. The Senate bill contains a record $858 billion in military spending, about $772 billion for non-military programs. It earmarks $45 billion in emergency assistance to Ukraine. It does not include a child tax credit expansion, Democrats say, would have sharply reduced child poverty and hunger. 
and ends a pandemic provision that led to record Medicaid enrollment, meaning millions of people will likely be kicked off the public health insurance program this spring. Over 200 million people across the United States are under a winter weather advisory today with the National Weather Service warning of a once-in-a-generation cold weather event ahead of the holiday weekend. Parts of the Midwest have received more than a foot of snow, with millions facing whiteout conditions and life-threatening wind chill advisories. Hundreds of thousands of homes and businesses have lost power. So far, more than 5,600 flights have been canceled due to the storm. Nearly 10,000 flights have been delayed. In Texas, humanitarian aid groups are preparing for freezing weekend temperatures as a growing number of asylum seekers continue to arrive from the U.S.-Mexico border. In El Paso, hundreds of asylum seekers have been forced to sleep on the streets after shelters reach capacity. Others are still stuck in Mexico after the U.S. Supreme Court put a temporary hold on terminating the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy used to block over 2 million people from entering the U.S. to seek asylum. Across the border in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, hundreds of people waited in line Thursday, despite plummeting temperatures, hoping they'd be allowed into the U.S. This is Chris Marie Rodriguez, a Venezuelan national who journeyed to the U.S.-Mexico border with her family. We who have families and want to provide for our children cannot enter the United States. We are at Christmas. Many are sharing with their families. Others, like us, are far from our families, and our children are having a hard time. There's December 24th, and you don't know where they're going to sleep. Arizona's Republican Governor Doug Ducey has reached an agreement with the federal government to dismantle his illegal makeshift U.S.-Mexico border wall built with double-stacked shipping containers and razor wire. Ducey's administration has spent over $80 million on the project since August, which he said was needed to fill in the gaps left by former President Trump's incomplete border wall. Ducey has until January 4th to remove the barrier one day before he leaves office. To see our coverage of the story, go to democracynow.org. In Afghanistan, a group of women took to the streets of Kabul Wednesday to protest the Taliban's ban on women and girls attending universities. Taliban forces arrested five protesters and three journalists. Some of the women said they were beaten by security forces. Guards also prevented hundreds of women from entering their colleges a day after the ban was announced. This is Mariam, a student at Kabul University, who was turned away from her campus Wednesday. When I got close to the university, I saw a strange environment. Taliban Humvees were parked at the entrance gate, and the Taliban were behaving so badly, telling us, return to your homes. Girls have no right to study anymore. This situation has a very bad impact on every female student. 
Dozens of male university professors have resigned to protest the ban, and some male students reportedly refused to take their exams. Meanwhile, a new report finds the U.S. unlawfully failed to compensate foreign workers who suffered injuries or death while working for the U.S.-led coalition in Afghanistan. Tens of thousands of foreign workers from countries, including Nepal and the Philippines, supported the U.S. military, working as guards, cooks, and construction workers. In Ukraine, a Russian-installed local official in the occupied Kherson region has been killed in a car bomb explosion. Video posted on social media shows the vehicle containing Andrei Stepa and one other person engulfed in flames Thursday. Russian news sources blame the blast on Ukrainian saboteurs. Elsewhere, the former head of the Russian space agency, Dmitry Rogozin, said Thursday he was injured by shrapnel and required surgery after Ukrainian shells hit a hotel where he was staying in Donetsk. Elsewhere, Ukrainian authorities in the eastern city of Kramatorsk said Russian missiles flattened an empty boarding school. Nearby residents say the attack blew out the windows of their apartments. I was on the balcony. There was a massive explosion. I could not tell where it came from. Then there was a second strike. The school caught on fire and smoke was rising over it. The entire yard was full of smoke and ashes. Power poles were damaged and the power went out. In Moscow, President Vladimir Putin Thursday used the word war to describe Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's the first time he has strayed from publicly calling the conflict a special military operation. Our goal is not to spin this flywheel of a military conflict, but on the contrary, to end this war. This is what we are striving for. Putin's remarks follow the arrests of anti-war Russians who face fines and up to 10 years in prison for calling the conflict a war instead of a military, a special military operation. The Chilean government's announced plans to open an embassy in the Israeli-occupied Palestinian territories. Chile's President Gabriel Boric made the announcement Wednesday during a ceremony in the capital, Santiago, hosted by the Palestinian community. We're going to upgrade Chile's official representation in Palestine from the charge of affairs we have today to an embassy we will open during our term. To give the representation it deserves and demand that international rights simply be respected. Over 300,000 Palestinians are estimated to be living in Chile, many with roots in the occupied West Bank and Bethlehem. The video-sharing platform TikTok has revealed some of its workers track two reporters who cover the company gaining access to their IP addresses and user data. One journalist was from the Financial Times, the other wrote for BuzzFeed and now works at Forbes. Forbes says at least two more of its reporters were targeted for surveillance, which was undertaken as part of an internal investigation into leaks at the company. ByteDance, the Chinese parent company of TikTok, says it did not approve the spying tactics and fired the worker who led the effort. This comes as the U.S. Senate Thursday 
Thursday passed a provision banning TikTok on most U.S. government devices. Some lawmakers have been fighting to ban the hugely popular app altogether amidst ongoing tensions between Washington and Beijing, saying it poses a national security and privacy risk. Here in New York, Republican Congressmember-elect George Santos has broken his silence over a New York Times investigation that found he misrepresented key parts of his background and finances. On Thursday, Santos tweeted, I have my story to tell, and it will be told next week, unquote. In the latest revelation of Santos' apparent fabrications, the Jewish outlet The Forward reports Santos lied about his grandparents fleeing anti-Jewish persecution during World War II. The Forward reports genealogy website shows Santos's maternal grandparents were born in Brazil, not Ukraine or Belgium, as his campaign website stated. On Wednesday, incoming House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries accused Santos of hiding from legitimate questions about his resume. At this moment, we need answers from George Santos. He appears to be a complete and utter fraud. His whole life story made up. We'll talk more about him after headlines. And Charlene Alexander Mitchell, freedom fighter and fierce defender of civil and human rights, has died at the age of 92. Mitchell helped lead the fight to free Angela Davis and other political prisoners. A member of the Communist Party, Charlene Mitchell became the first black woman to run for U.S. president in 1968. She passed away last week here in New York City. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House Select Committee on the January 6th attack released its final 845-page report late Thursday night on the insurrection at the Capitol and Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The report states, quote, the central cause of January 6th was one man, former President Donald Trump whom many others followed. None of the events of January 6 would have happened without him. The report goes on to state, quote, the select committee estimates in the two months between the November election and the January 6 insurrection, President Trump or his inner circle engaged in at least 200 apparent acts of public or private outreach, pressure or condemnation targeting either state legislators or state or local election administrators to overturn state election results. The report is based on a year-and-a-half investigation that included over 1,000 interviews. The House Select Committee is urging Congress to consider barring Trump and other people involved in the insurrection from holding public office, citing the 14th Amendment. The January 6th committee is also calling for reforms to the Electoral College certification process and expanded efforts by the government to combat far-right and white supremacist groups who played a key role in the January 6th insurrection. The report documents how many of the first rioters to break into the Capitol on January 6th were members of the Proud Boys, three percenters, believers of the QAnon conspiracy theories, and other white nationalists. The report was issued Thursday night, three days after the House Select Committee voted to refer Donald Trump to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. 
To talk more about the January 6th report, we're joined by John Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent in a very cold Wisconsin. Welcome to Democracy Now!, John. Jamie, thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. Well, why don't you start off by responding to the report? It came out last night about 10 o'clock Eastern. Um, but if you can talk about what you've assessed so far uh, most surprised you, what's most significant about it? Well, it is a significant report. There's simply no question, Amy. It, uh, it is very long. It has an immense amount of detail. And I think one of the most striking things is the clarity with which this report says what uh, committee chair Benny Thompson has been saying since the start of their public hearings. And that is that this was a coup attempt and that Donald Trump was at the center of it. The report comes back to this again and again and again, I think seeking to make uh, clear to the American people, but also to the Department of Justice that uh, this is not a, 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 a difficult call to make. This is not a complicated issue. That that the information that they drew from their witnesses uh, clearly thing that that I mean, in the report is that the recommendations that they've made, which are way late in the report, you have to read, you've got to go through about 680 pages to get to the recommendations as regards policy, because so much of the focus has been on personality. But when you get to policy, the report, the recommendations are actually relatively limited. Um, they do talk about the Electoral Count Act reforms, which I appear to be moving through Congress pretty well at this point. They also talk, I think most importantly, about uh, Amendment 14, Section 3, and that is the section of the Constitution which allows uh, someone who participated in or supported an insurrection to be barred from holding office. And I think one of the most striking things in the report is a clear argument that Congress should take steps to clarify uh, Article 14. John, we're going to break and then come back and clear up your audio. Um, John Nichols is the nation's national affairs correspondent. His recent piece for the magazine is headlined, The January 6th Committee Just Put Kevin McCarthy in Charge of an Investigation into Kevin McCarthy. Stay with us. Hey! Get the 
full of mirrors performed by the pretenders. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we continue to look at the final report put out by the January 6th Select Committee saying Donald Trump is responsible for this insurrection, that without him it would not have taken place. John Nichols, nation's national affairs correspondent. John, why don't you take it from where you left off? But I just want to be clear. In Madison, Wisconsin, where you are, is it true? Is it true it's 31 degrees Fahrenheit below zero? That's the wind chill. Uh, I think the uh, the actual below zero is three to five below. But then the wind, we've got 40 mile an hour winds. So it is taking us uh, down to about 30, 35 below. So I want to say we were going to have for this very important day, John Nichols in a studio in Madison. But even the studio said they were simply going to be closed Um, that too much. I mean, they just everyone is frozen out. Well, John, um, this late breaking story of uh, of the report. Yes, ever late. It was supposed to be a few days before, but it did come out last night. I'm sure they were desperately trying to get it out before uh, Congress um, uh, where before Congress um, ended for this year, not clear what will happen with the change of uh, House from Republic from Democratic to Republican leadership. But continue with what you were saying. Sure. What I was saying is that um, the the report focuses primarily on the personalities, on Donald Trump and the other people we've heard mentioned a lot. But as you get toward the end of the report, and I think page 689, they have their recommendations. And their recommendations are important uh, because it's really the policies that come out of this that ultimately will protect us from future incidents like January 6th, 2021. And what they propose is a reform of the, which is moving through Congress now. It looks like that may actually happen. Uh, they also propose uh, taking steps that will allow to have much more clarity as regards Article 14, Section 3 of the Constitution, which says that a office holder who supports an insurrection or gives aid and comfort to an insurrection, participates in an insurrection, uh, can be barred from office. And so they want to give clarity of that to that so that Congress can act on that issue in the future. Now, all of this takes us back, Amy, to the reality that this Congress, particularly this Senate, failed uh, back in February of 2021 uh, in the impeachment process. Had Donald Trump been convicted by the Senate, then we would have had clarity on, on these issues at that point. Because that didn't happen, now we have a series of recommendations, which in some ways are an admission that uh, Congress doesn't think that the impeachment process probably will ever work. So they want to have another vehicle to bar those who participate in insurrections. The final thing I'll mention as regards the recommendations, and it's a disappointment on my part, is that the committee did not make a clear statement that the Electoral College should be abolished. Because the fact of the matter is that the Electoral College is the root of a lot of these problems. This, you know, convoluted, you know, mess of a system, uh, which has, you know, the votes being counted at certain points and then transferred to Congress and all that created the real opening for Donald Trump and his allies uh, to do the things that they did. And and I think that while abolishing the Electoral College would be difficult, it's something that clearly the committee should have recommended. They did make recommendations, but did not go that far, John. Can you explain what those recommendations are? 
Well, it, it, as regards the Electoral Count Act, as regards the um, uh, the clarity on 14.3, and then there's a number of other recommendations, Amy, within uh, this list for just simply making the processes of Congress work more effectively as regards oversight. Um, and so they're, they're a, a, a solid set of recommendations, but not a bold set of recommendations, to my view. They also dealt with a number of issues. For example, they said that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, um, said, why are we allowing the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to be there? This was days before the January 6th protest, uh, but he'd not get support in what he had to say. Uh, you have um, Cassidy Hutchinson um, and her lawyer, um, Cassidy Hutchinson was then out of work. She was asked to uh, speak before the committee. And her lawyer um, was given to her by, as she put it, Trump world, Stefan Passantino. And he told her um, that she should simply say, don't recall. She did that apparently the first time around in she uh, testified before um, the staff several times she was questioned and then came out and said, I feel like I am lying. Um, actually, it's interesting. The latest news is that Stefan Passantino has is on um, leave from his law firm. And many legal experts are saying um, as a message to other lawyers like Passantino is that if you interfere in this way. This is literally um, witness tampering and that you can go to jail. Right. Look, um, this report is incredibly detailed, and it does, in fact, look at a lot of the issues as regards the attempts by former President Trump and his allies to thwart this investigation. Uh, And you can understand why. At the heart of this report, Uh, And at the heart of what the committee has done are recommendations that Trump be prosecuted and that his close some of his closest allies be prosecuted. So that I think they knew from the start that this was where the whole process was headed and they wanted to undermine and and weaken that process. And so the report goes into a lot of detail on that. And some of that may well uh, turn out to be significant as regards uh, future prosecutions and future action by the Justice Department. But I would counsel, Amy, there's a, there's a significant aspect of this that we should be conscious of. This report is really a roadmap. It is a roadmap as regards what the Department of Justice might do. It is also a roadmap as to what Congress might do. It is not a certainty by any means. Uh, there is a lot. There are still a lot of open areas uh, and open questions within the report that effectively the committee says, well, The Department of Justice is going to have to go deeper on this. They're going to have to explore this more thoroughly. They're going to have to ask more questions. And so I think people should be very cautious about assuming that simply because this report has been released with its recommendations to the Department of Justice and to Congress, that we are necessarily going to have a a true moment of accountability. Again, I keep coming back to this point. The moment of accountability should have been back with impeachment uh, in February of 2021. And uh, you and I talked a lot about impeachment before that. Uh, and, and I remember I was in Madison on uh, January 6th when, when things occurred. And because I'd written so much about impeachment, my phone started ringing off the hook. And, and I really you know, did, I think, believe for a, a few days there that it was possible we'd have the accountability moment as it was intended. 
Instead, what we ended up with is this long, very slow process of trying to find a route to accountability. And I would emphasize, we're still not there. And talk about Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> well, Kevin McCarthy is uh, obviously in this report in a significant way. Uh, both they describe how he sought to thwart the committee's work initially, and then they also talk about how he refused to cooperate with the committee. And there's been a recommendation to the uh, House Ethics Committee that they examine Kevin McCarthy's actions uh, for potential penalties. The problem with that is that this report comes so late in the current Congress that any action on it will take place in the next Congress. And the next Congress will likely be led, led by Kevin McCarthy. He will then appoint the five Republican members of the Ethics Committee, one of whom will serve as chair of the committee. So we end up in a situation where Kevin McCarthy is effectively overseeing his own oversight. And it's really one of the messes as regards how the House Ethics Committee works. Um, we're going to step aside from the January 6th report for a minute to talk about George Santos. Uh, he is the new Congress member elect from Long Island. Republican would be the first openly gay congressman, if he's even telling the truth about that, because so much we do not know about who this man is, including possibly his name. He's just put out on Twitter, I'll have my story to tell. I'm going to tell it next week. This is the latest um, news that we have. Um, um, revelation of Santos' apparent fabrications, the Jewish forwards reporting Santos lied about his grandparents fleeing anti-Jewish persecution during World War II. The Forward Reports genealogy website shows Santos's gr maternal grandparents were born in Brazil, not Ukraine or Belgium, as he said. On Wednesday, the incoming House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries accused Santos of hiding from legitimate questions about his resume. Now, to be clear, that's just the latest revelation of what wasn't true. Um, also, what's not true is that he said he uh, presided over a 501c3 nonprofit, an animal rescue group. Um, the IRS says they have no record of that group, Friends of Pets United. He said uh, he graduated from Baruch College. Uh, Baruch College said they have no record of him. Um, also, that he worked at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Both said uh, they have no record of him there. It is not even clear we know what his real name is, John Nichols. And this is the second time he's won for—he's run, first time uh, he won. He was also at the January 6th insurrection in Washington. Look, there's a, you're putting a lot on the table here, and uh, all of it points to a, a really significant issue with this uh, representative-elect. Here's the thing to understand, first off, and that is this is a big deal because the Republican majority— in the House of Representatives is so narrow, so small, that if Representative-elect Santos is, uh, decides not to take his seat, uh, is in some ways is forced not to take his seat or whatever, that would obviously require a lot of action by Congress, um, then you reduce that Republican majority. So it's a big deal, actually, toward the governance of, of the country in the coming term. But as regards Santos, I think the thing that, that really is important here is there'll be an immense amount of focus on the man and on his uh, apparent uh, you know, difficulties with the truth. What's troublesome to me is that this story is being told now. This is someone who has run for Congress twice, 
uh, and who has run for Congress and been elected in one of the in the biggest media center in the world. This is a place, New York City and surrounding New York City, uh, where you have you know all sorts of media outlets. And yet he was not properly vetted. And it really speaks to the collapse of political journalism in the 21st century. Uh, there is a lot of coverage to Washington, but there is too little coverage of what's happening down at the congressional district level and in our communities across the country. In my view, it's really a collapse of journalism story. And this latest uh, was an expose in The New York Times of who he was, though the man he ran against, Zimmerman, said that he was continually raising these issues on the campaign trail. John Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent, speaking to us from an extremely cold Madison, Wisconsin, will link to your piece. The January 6th committee just put Kevin McCarthy in charge of an investigation into Kevin McCarthy. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. We're continuing to look at the new January 6th report which details how white supremacist groups played a key role in the insurrection. But the report says little about the role of racism in what happened. In fact, the word racism appears only once in the report. The committee chair, Benny Thompson, writes in his introduction, quote, I believe most Americans will turn their backs on those enemies of democracy, but some will rally to the side of the election deniers. And when I think about who some of those people are, it troubles me deep inside. White supremacists, violent extremists, groups that subscribe to racism, anti-Semitism, and violent conspiracy theories, those who would march through the halls of the Capitol waving the Confederate battle flag, Thompson wrote. Well, to talk more about the January 6th report, we're joined now by Hakeem Jefferson, an assistant professor at Stanford University, faculty affiliate with the Center for Comparative Study in Race and Ethnicity and the Center for Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. We welcome you to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Professor Jefferson. Talk about what you, you feel um, has not been adequately addressed here when it comes to Donald Trump's leading the insurrection and the insurrection itself. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Amy. It's a real honor to be here. Uh, when I wrote my initial piece about January the 6th, the day of the insurrection, I wrote that piece because I worried so much that what would get lost in the shuffle as we talked about this spectacular event was the role of race and racism. Uh, it's striking the image of Benny Thompson as the chair of the January 6th committee, a Southern black man leading the charge to investigate uh, the insurrection. Uh, and it's not surprising that it is in his opening remarks of the report that we see the word racism emerge. We see him telling the story about an insurrection that has far deeper roots uh, than simply the fact that Donald Trump uh, wanted to hold on to power. And so what I worried would get lost in the shuffle and what I think uh, enough people haven't attended to is how much the insurrection reflects these deep resentments and this sort of a longstanding grievance that so many white Americans have when they worry and are anxious about what they perceive to be a precarious hold on power. Put simply, uh, those who stormed the Capitol, as I wrote uh, in a piece for 538, the day of the insurrection, 
they didn't merely come in defense of Donald Trump. They came in defense of white supremacy and white Americans hold on power and an and a hold on power that is that is not uh, in competition with other racial groups. Um, Professor Jefferson, we're speaking to you actually in Sumter, South Carolina. Benny Thompson, of course, represents Mississippi, the committee chair. Um, if you can talk more about uh, who these groups are, uh, you know, I would just ask John Nichols about uh, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, um, saying he was saying, why are these guys, the Proud Boys, um, why are the Oath Keepers, why are they even allowed to be there? Uh, also, you know, there was word that many people were armed. If you could comment on this. Yeah, I mean, these are far-right extremist groups. Uh, the Proud Boys sort of outwardly uh, say that they're not a white supremacist group. They've engaged, however, in activities that align with white supremacist and white nationalist ideologies. These are groups that hold uh, a kind of mantle of traditional masculinity. Uh, they wield a kind of conservatism and traditionalism uh, that hold up the mantle of Western uh, values. Uh, these are groups uh, who you don't need a PhD to understand their ideology. These are groups that are really okay with a kind of racial hierarchy in this country, uh, want to sustain a kind of hierarchy where white men are empowered. Uh, and Donald Trump embodied the values of these groups. We'll recall that he said to stand by, stand down and stand by. Uh, to these groups. He made no secret of his at least tacit allegiance with the ideologies that these groups profess. And so when January 6th comes, it's no surprise that leading the charge, uh, and I mean that literally, leading the charge to uh, uh, obstruct democracy were members of these groups who had planned for some time in Reddit groups and in other dark places of the internet. Uh, had planned the insurrection, had talked about violence, had talked about uh, uh, killing Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence if he didn't uh, do his duties that day as they saw fit. And so these are groups who had long held these ideologies, who on the day of the insurrection led the charge, and who, if only, if not for luck that we had that day, would have carried out, I think, even more violence uh, in service of protecting and defending Donald Trump's legacy, but also in holding up the mantle of white supremacy and white nationalism. Can you talk about Benny Thompson being chair of the select committee that is trying to hold President Trump to account? Benny Thompson of Mississippi, who often requotes um, the late, great John Lewis talking about good yes. trouble versus Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, it is such a visual, a striking visual to see and what is uh, one of the most powerful committees that the Congress has ever had, 
this Southern black man who speaks with a Southern drawl, who can talk about racism, not merely because he studied it, but because he lived it in the American South. Uh, and to have him lead this committee where race and racism uh, were at the fore, if only because we were forced to engage with the real power and politics of Benny Thompson and imposing uh, if soft-spoken uh, black man who I think uh, will go down in the history books as having led uh, a committee that did uh, really important work. And so I am, as you noted, uh, currently in Sumter, South Carolina, a place that has its own racial history. Uh, and I think Benny Thompson brought that history with him, that history of, of race and racism and the American South to his duties as chair of this committee. And as I noted earlier, it's not striking that the one time, it's not surprising, I should say, that the one time that racism is mentioned in the report is by Benny Thompson, a person who saw, I think, Donald Trump uh, for, for exactly who he is, uh, a political elite sort of uh, uh, showered in privilege, uh, showered in a sense of entitlement, uh, and, and showered in a sense of, of whiteness and of, of white supremacy, uh, a sense that people like him should wield power in this country. And I don't think that was lost on, on Benny Thompson. And I think that comes through rather clearly in those remarks that you shared with us from his opening comments in, in the report. In this last moment we have, you are a professor. How do you want this historical moment to be remembered and to be taught? And what you want to come out of this with now the House committee referring criminal charges against Donald Trump to the Justice Department? I, I think that as I reflect on, on this moment and, and what I've told my students and as I've written elsewhere is that uh, we, would, we would be missing something really important if what we left uh, this moment with was just the sense that this really spectacular event happened on January the 6th, that, that it was something unique uh, that happened that day. Instead, I think what we should take from this moment is something that I wrote uh, with Victor Ray again at 538, which is that moments of progress in this country are often met uh, with moments of backlash. Uh, that backlash, white backlash in particular, is a racial reckoning too, as Victor and I wrote. And so I think what I want people to leave this moment thinking about is what are those other instances of racial backlash uh, that we've experienced in this country or are experiencing in this country? Republican attacks on the right to vote, a racial backlash, the kind of racial violence that we've seen in corners ac across the country, uh, that's a, a racial backlash Two, the sort of daily workings against democracy, uh, particularly those advanced by the Republican Party, we should see those in the same vein that we see the spectacular attack on January the 6th. This is a racial backlash. This is about a racial ordering and a racial hierarchy. It is about power. Uh, it is about the maintenance of group status. It is about the defense of whiteness. And, and that has a long through line in American history that comes in spectacular form on January the 6th, but manifest 
and more mundane and quotidian ways every day in American life. And I think that's the lesson of this moment that shouldn't be lost on any of us. Hakeem Jefferson, we want to thank you for being with us, Assistant Professor at Stanford University, faculty affiliate at Stanford Center for Comparative Study in Race and Ethnicity, and the Center for Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, speaking to us from Sumter, South Carolina. Coming up, the quest to defuse Guyana's carbon bomb. We'll look at efforts to prevent ExxonMobil from drilling off the shore of Guyana, where more than 11 billion barrels of oil have been discovered. Back in 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah, yes. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we end today's show looking at the quest to defuse Guyana's carbon bomb. That's the title of a new piece in Wired magazine by investigative journalist Antonia Juhas, which details an effort to block ExxonMobil from drilling off the shore of Guyana, where more than 11 billion barrels of oil have been discovered. Guyana is a coastal nation on the North Atlantic coast of South America. It shares a border with Venezuela, Brazil, and Suriname. Critics of the plan say the drilling could be a disaster for Guyana and the world as the climate emergency intensifies. Today, Guyana is considered to be a carbon sink thanks to its dense rain, forests, and low emissions. But if Exxon has its way, Guyana could soon become what's known as a carbon bomb. We're joined by two guests. Melinda Janke is Guyanese environmental lawyer based in Georgetown, Guyana, who helped draft many of Guyana's national environmental laws, including Guyana's Environmental Protection Act. She filed a landmark lawsuit against Exxon and the Guyanese government in May 2021 to stop the offshore oil drilling. We're also joined by longtime award-winning investigative journalist Antonia Juhas, author of the cover story of Wired, The Quest to Defuse Guyana's Carbon Bomb. Antonia, talk about why you felt this was so important to bring to the world. Yeah, thank you, Amy, and thanks so much for having me. And good morning to Melinda Janke in Georgetown. Um, this is just such a critically important case. It's a landmark lawsuit that Melinda has launched against Exxon's operations in Guyana. And these are brand new operations. Exxon started producing in 2019, making Guyana one of the few countries in the world when the rest of the world or much of the world is trying to get off of fossil fuels. Guyana is one of the few countries that's entering a new 
new into the fossil fuel era and in a really big way, um, if Exxon has any say in it. Exxon wants to produce by 2030 one million barrels of oil a day offshore Guyana, and that would make Guyana its single largest source of daily oil production anywhere in the world. 2030 is also the year that much of coastal Guyana, Georgetown, where Melinda is joining us from and where uh, the coastal area where 90 percent of the population lives, is expected to be underwater because of the unchecked um, advance of the climate crisis. And what Melinda has done, and she, of course, will talk about it, is launch a historic um, climate and human rights lawsuit to stop those operations, hopefully to try and stop them before they advance too far and, as you say, become one of the world's leading potential carbon bombs, um, operations that are capable of releasing um, so many emissions that they are disastrous, over a gigaton of emissions um, to the global climate and to um, Guyana itself. And these operations are also critically important to Exxon. It's hard to overstate how important they are to Exxon, which is also why this lawsuit is so important to be coming from um, the global south. Seventy percent of climate lawsuits are from the United States. Ninety percent are from the global north. So to have a country that's experiencing some of the worst impacts of climate change about to become one of the largest energy producers also launch this historic lawsuit that could become a precedent to try and stop those operations is just so important that I wanted to help bring this story uh, to a broader audience. So let's go to Melinda Janke, the Guyanese international environmental lawyer based in Georgetown, Guyana. Now, you have drafted many of Guyana's national environmental laws, including Guyana's Environmental Protection Act of 1996. Now, you are suing Guyana and ExxonMobil. Um, talk about why you launched this suit last year, what it means currently that Guyana is a carbon sink, and what this would do to your country. Amy, thank you very much. It's an honor to be on your program, and warm greetings to you and your audience around the world. This lawsuit was launched last year essentially to challenge the fossil fuel build-out offshore Guyana. And we argue that it is unconstitutional because it violates the constitutional right to a healthy environment. And this is actually a, a very different sort of case because we're treating climate change as the symptom. We're going right to the heart of the problem. And we're saying that fossil fuels produce greenhouse gas And greenhouse gas pollution is the problem that is causing climate change. Rising sea levels, which Antonio mentioned, will have a devastating impact on Georgetown, the capital capital city. And fossil fuel, the greenhouse gas pollution from fossil fuels is also making the ocean more acid. As you mentioned, we're a coastal nation and we're already seeing an impact. We once had um, a, a very viable shrimp industry. Now, when you go into the shops, you, you're buying shrimp from that's coming from places like Vietnam. We argue that what's happening here is, is destroying the right to a healthy environment. In the Environmental Protection Act that you um, uh, pushed to establish the concept of natural capital, what does that mean, Melinda? 
It's very simple. Traditionally, economists treat the natural world as if it has no value. So, for example, a standing forest is considered to be worthless. But if you cut it down and turn it into logs, then economists will tell you that now you have something that has value. Natural capital says the exact opposite. It says that the forest has a value in itself. And of course, this makes sense because we can't live without the natural world. And I lobbied very hard some time ago for a change to the constitution, which is in there in Article 36, which actually states that preserving clean air, fertile soils, pure water, and the rich diversity of plants and animals and ecosystems, that's what the well-being of the nation depends on. And that is critical because at the end of the day, we're not going to eat oil. We're not going to drink oil. We, our survival as people, in fact, our survival as a species depends on the natural world. And that is one of the reasons that it has to be taken into account and it has to have a value as a pushback against this crazy mentality that the natural world has no value until you convert it to numbers in a spreadsheet. So that guarantee, um, the right to a healthy environment for present and future generations, you have pushed for in the Constitution. It's in the Constitution. It's enshrined there. So what has been Guyana's response to the lawsuit, not to mention ExxonMobil? You've sued them both. So the the government's response has been to say roughly that the Constitution does provide for sustainable development and Guyana has a right to develop. And they have pointed out that Guyana has been a minuscule, very tiny contributor to climate change. The case was originally filed against the Attorney General, who is the representative of the state, because what we're saying is that the state is violating the right to a healthy environment. That is the basis of the case. The judge added ExxonMobil to the case, and Exxon's approach is to say that the main testimony should be struck out because in the, in that testimony by Dr. Troy Thomas, one of the litigants, he sets out the impacts of greenhouse gas pollution on the environment. So the, so climate change, rising sea level, ocean acidification, a warmer ocean, etc. All of these things, which I'm sure that the audience is extremely familiar with. ExxonMobil says that these things are not facts but that they are matters of um, scientific opinion and that since Dr. Thomas is not a scientific expert, he cannot give, he cannot make those statements and they have applied to strike out his testimony. We have responded by filing an affidavit saying that these, the impacts of fossil fuels, the impact of greenhouse gas pollution is so well known that it is no longer capable of being disputed. And can you talk about the World Bank, the involvement of the World Bank in Guyana and the production of fossil fuels, Melinda Janke? Yes, the World Bank has been very strongly in favor of Guyana converting um, to producing 
fossil fuels. The World Bank, in fact, in the 1980s, was behind the legislation that established a petroleum, the, they established the petroleum legislation. The World Bank has lent money to Guyana to get ready for fossil fuel production. The grant, the arrangement between the World Bank and Guyana was illegal because it was made with, with someone uh, who was not the finance minister at the time because the government had, had lost a no-confidence motion, so there were no ministers. Nevertheless, the World Bank went ahead and signed the agreement and advanced the money. The World Bank has the World Bank project with the full knowledge of the World Bank, hired lawyers who represent ExxonMobil to alter Guyana's laws, including um, the World Bank wanted to dismantle the Environmental Protection Act. They said that it was out of date. Now, this is legislation which requires, requires companies to state the impact of their actions on all aspects of the environment, including the climate, the atmosphere, and the ocean. How on earth can the World Bank argue with any credibility that this is out of date? And it was done at a time when we know that the fossil fuel industry was lying about the impact on climate change. These provisions were put into the legislation in 1996. And yes, they were drafted by me. The result of that is that all companies in Guyana, all oil companies in particular, and ExxonMobil, they have to say what is the impact of their scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. And that perhaps is what the World Bank is upset about. The World Bank is also encouraging Guyana to do gas um, and to take gas and convert Guyana to gas instead of renewable energy. We have a serious problem at the moment because ExxonMobil is flaring billions of cubic feet of gas offshore Guyana. They have said it is because they are using faulty equipment. The Guyana government is now proposing to take that gas and use it for energy. And because this is not financially viable, the, the Guyana government is hoping that the U.S. Exim Bank will lend the money to enable them to do it. And all of this is being done, of course, with the, with the encouragement of the World Bank and is co completely contrary to the World Bank's own policies. It is contrary to the Paris Agreement, which says that financing flows should now be aligned with the Paris Agreement and keeping the temperature below 1.5. And we would argue that it is also incompatible with national law for the Guyana government to do this on many different grounds, not simply the uh, violation of the right to a healthy environment. Let me ask Antonio Yuhas, um, could Guyana cope with a massive oil spill like the one triggered by the BP Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico? Um, you wrote the book Black Tide, the devastating impact of the Gulf oil spill. And it's just so interesting to be talking to you both about this now as the people of the United States, to say the least, um, are experiencing what is being called a climate bomb, a once in a generation. Um, cold, um, level of cold and snow that has not been experienced here in a long time, Antonia. 
Yeah, well, while Melinda wrote incredibly good um, environmental provisions into Guyana's laws and constitution, um, Guyana absolutely does not have anything close to the capacity to regulate and oversee um, deep water, highly technologically complex offshore drilling. The United States didn't have the capacity to do it. We had the worst offshore drilling oil spill in history in our waters. Guyana definitely doesn't have the capacity to do it. So we will certainly hope and pray that nothing of that scale happens. But if it does, the devastation uh, would be extreme, just as it was in the U.S. Gulf Coast. Um, but adding to what Melinda said, you know, one of the many important things that Melinda did was put into place the right to a healthy environment guaranteed for current and future generations. We have the United Nations then, followed Tanya. suit. And now the world has the opportunity to implement that right. And what Exxon really doesn't want is for us to regulate and hold them to account for all of their emissions, from the production to consumption of emissions. And that's their biggest fear with this case, is that that's what they're going to be held to. And we can all uh, support Melinda in hoping that that outcome uh, comes to pass. We want to thank you both so much for being with us. And, of course, we'll continue to follow this story. Investigative journalist Antonia Yuhas will link to your new Wired article, The Quest to Defuse Guyana's Carbon Bomb, and Melinda Janke, Guyanese environmental lawyer who has sued Exxon and Guyana. I'm Amy Goodman. Safe